The Committee on Foreign Relations will come to order. I want to welcome the nominees. Today we'll consider five nominations. Ms. Andalise Castillo to be the U.S. Alternate Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. Ms. Alma Golden to be the Assistant Administrator of the U.S. United States Agency for International Development. Mr. Peter Heyman to be the Ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Alina, Ms. Alina Romanowski to be the Ambassador to the State of Kuwait. And Ms. Leslie Meredith uh, Sue to be ambassador to the Sultanate of Oman. If confirmed, you'll have important roles and responsibilities in advancing our nation's foreign policy objectives and in protecting our national security interests and values. This is especially true for those countries with concerning records on human rights and democracy and those in which we are working to improve the economy, security, and bilateral relations. In Laos, from the same end, uh, the U.S. continues to pursue policies that advance the goal of a free and open Indo-Pacific. So I'll be interested to hear how you see Laos fitting into America's strategy and interests in the region. And Kuwait, is a, it is a strategic partner for the United States that's hosting military personnel and cooperating with us on a host of issues, including countering regional threats. I'll be interested today to hear how we will continue to work with the Kuwaitis on counter-terror financing and find opportunities to bring Kuwait closer to U.S. policy on halting Iran's destabilized, destabilizing activities in the region. In Oman, the U.S. should also continue our cooperation, particularly on countering threats posed by the brutal regime in Tehran. We work together with them on many issues, and so I look forward to hearing uh, views on ways to strengthen the relationship and advance our areas of mutual interest for our nations. Uh, uh, Ms. Goldman, on the USAID Global Health, the stakes of this position are high as, as global health programs consume roughly a third of USAID's budget. These programs and initiatives include maternal and child health, controlling the HIV-AIDS epidemic, combating infectious diseases such as tuberculosis, malaria, and tropical diseases. And doing so is not just a moral imperative. These are matters of national security for our country. Global health crises such as an Ebola outbreak in the DRC quickly become out of control, leaving many dead and creating instability and chaos. I believe it's in our country's interest to help countries bring, uh, build strong health systems and, Im and improve global health security. And that's why funding and effective leadership are important, and I look forward to hearing about your priorities. Finally, in the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, the U.S. has an opportunity to help support economic, social, and institutional development in the region, a region of the world that lies, obviously, in our own hemisphere, and yet I think is too often ignored. Uh, while we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world, countries to our south suffer from poverty, weak institutions, violence, uh, political instability, dictatorial regimes, and growing influence and pressure from China and Russia. And so I look forward to hearing from you, Ms. Castillo, uh, how you hope to address many of these issues that are holding back these countries in the region from becoming strong democracies that respect the rule of law and human rights and who have achieved economic stability and, and prosperity as well. Should each of you be confirmed to your respective positions, you will play important roles in advancing our foreign policy. We're at a critical point in our history where increasingly aggressive governments, such as the Chinese Communist government and the Russian government under Vladimir Putin, are working to, to weaken America's influence and role in the world. They would love nothing more than to exert their influence by stepping into vacuums left behind by our nation. And for these reasons and many more, the U.S. must remain engaged and play a key leadership role on the global stage, find ways to support young and emerging democracies, and strengthen our bilateral relationships around the world. We, we have a real opportunity, and that's why your roles will be important. So again, I want to thank each of you and your families for your commitment to our nation and your willingness to serve to the ranking member. Well, thank you, Chairman Rubio, for calling this 
hearing. Uh, we have five very important nominees for positions uh, in regards to missions in other countries as well as international organizations. I welcome all five of the nominees. I thank you for your willingness to serve our nation during these extremely challenging times. And we thank your families, because we know that this will be a sacrifice to the, to the families. And we thank you for your service. Uh, as I do with just about every nominee, I will be asking you questions concerning human rights and how you'll advance human rights. But today, particularly, the question that's on the mind of most Americans uh, is what your view was on the Houston manager's decision as it related to <laughs> the changing of pitching. Um, let, let me. <laughs> I don't think she has I, to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to just acknowledge, Mr. Chairman, that until the people of the District of Columbia have their, their own United States senators uh, in, in this body, it's incumbent upon the senators from Maryland and Virginia to speak out on behalf of the people of the District of Columbia. And we will. And congratulations to the Washington Nats. It was a great victory. And I think we're all proud of, of, of the way that they conducted their season. They never gave up, even though the, the, there were times that I think there was a, people wondered whether they had a chance. And now, of course, being the national, winning the uh, championship, <laughs> we have great pride. So uh, moving on to this hearing and who we have here, um, Ms. Costello, I want to I want to first um, thank you for your willingness. To, the the Inter-American Development Bank is very important in their leadership in our own hemisphere. As the chairman's pointed out, there are significant challenges that we confront today, from the influence of China and Russia in our hemisphere to the challenges that have been brought forward in regards to the migrations from Central America and the challenges from Venezuela. So. We're, we're, we want to know how you will be leading uh, this agency, if confirmed, to provide the help that the Inter-American Development Bank can do in regards to productivity and innovation in our hemisphere, gender equality, uh, dealing with environmental stewardship, and the protection of human rights. To Ms. Golden, um, in regards to the uh, Bureau of Global Health, we all understand that Global health issues equal stability for us. It's a national security concern as well as a humanitarian concern. So your leadership here is going to be critically important. We've seen new Ebola outbreaks as well as measles and cholera presenting challenges for us. Uh, I will mention uh, that I, I welcome your thoughts as to how th this administration's revised and expanded uh, uh, Mexico City policy is it going to affect our mission on dealing with issues such as family planning? Even though no funds of the United States can go for abortion, uh, we know that it's also affecting other programs and capacities within uh, our, our mission to deal with global health. And in regards to uh, Mr. Hammond, uh, Ms. Ms. Romanowski, and Ms. So, I want to thank all three of you for your career service, diplomatic service. That's been very much challenged in, the, in this environment, but you're continuing to serve our nation in, in a critically important in, uh, roles. Uh, each of the countries that you have been nominated to are critically important to us for national security concerns, the growing influence of, of China. Uh, and I will be asking you as to how you will advance American values, if confirmed, 
uh, including the protection of human rights of the people in the, of the country in which our mission is located. I look forward to your testimony. Again, thank you all for your willingness to serve our country. Thank you very much. Let me, uh, I guess I'll start from, from uh, right to left to introduce our nominees. Uh, Ms. Annalise Castillo uh, is currently serves as the Special Assistant to the President and Deputy Director of Public Liaison and Intergovernmental Affairs in the Office of the Vice President. Of course, she's nominated to be U.S. Alternate Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. Ms. Alma Golden to be Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. She's the Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab uh, where she oversees the lab and its operations. Mr. Peter Heyman to be the uh, Ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. He's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as charge at the U.S. Embassy in Bangkok, Thailand. Ms. Selena Romanowski to be Ambassador to the State of Kuwait. Ms. Romanowski assumes her post as the Acting Principal Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism on November 14th, 20, assumed her post on November 14th as the Principal Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism, where she oversees coordination and integration of the Department of State and U.S. government's international efforts to advance specific counterterrorism policies, objectives, and develops and Im implements them. Ms. Uh, Leslie Meredith Tsu to be ambassador to the Sultanate of Oman. She's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, is deputy chief of mission at the U.S. mission in Israel, and is the first deputy chief of mission of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. Previously, she served as the senior advisor on Iran and director of the Office of Iranian Affairs at the Department of State. So thank you all for being here. We'll start with you, Ms. Castillo. Thank you, and you're recognized for your opening statement. Good morning. Chairman Risch, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Members Menendez and Cardin, and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I am very honored and humbled that President Trump has nominated me to serve as the U.S. Alternate Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. I am grateful to Secretary Mnuchin and U.S. Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank, Elliot Pedrosa, for their confidence and support throughout this process. Earlier this year, I was blessed to become a mom to my seven-month-old son, Noah Manuel. It is the toughest yet the most rewarding role I have held thus far. I share this responsibility with my loving husband, Reynaldo Pagang, who is here with me today. I must say that I'm an incredibly proud wife of a U.S. veteran. My husband served this country for more than 20 years in the U.S. Army. My mom, Nevis, and my stepdad, Jorge, who have always supported me with their unconditional love, could not be here today, but are watching from home as they care for my son. And lastly, I would be remiss if I did not recognize my beautiful grandparents, Manuel and Berta, who are watching from above. I was born and raised in New York City as a first-generation immigrant. My mother, along with her three sisters and my grandparents, fled to the United States, settling in New York in pursuit of basic rights and opportunities that were stripped away in their homeland of Cuba. Their experience of losing everything due to communism and authoritarianism taught me early on the value of democracy, economic opportunity, human rights, and freedoms. In addition to my mother's immigrant experience, her ability to successfully raise my brother Alex, my sister Adriana, and me for several years on her own, instilled the principles of self-reliance, hard work, and perseverance. 
In my nearly 15 years of professional experience, I have had the great privilege to serve the American people in the legislative and executive branch. I have worked in communications, coalition building, intergovernmental affairs, and policy. My professional introduction to Western Hemisphere affairs began in the office of South Florida Congressman Lincoln Diaz-Ballard and continued in a greater capacity after joining the House Committee on Foreign Affairs under Chairman Ileana ross Leighton. Today, in the Vice President's office, although my primary function is to serve as an interface between civil society groups and Vice President Pence, I have worked closely with the Western Hemisphere National Security Team on issues to advance democracy and human rights throughout the region. I was fortunate to visit Colombia, Argentina, Chile, and Panama with the Vice President on his first official trip to Latin America. Outside of government, I led a nonprofit organization as Chief Operating Officer and Chief of Staff for several years. I gained valuable management and operations experience overseeing a team of nearly 100 full-time employees across 10 states. If I'm fortunate to be confirmed, I look forward to addressing issues that are hindering progress in Latin America and the Caribbean, such as poverty, corruption, weak institutions, gang violence, socialism, lack of human capital, and China's growing influence. The shared goal of the United States and of, of the Inter-American Development Bank is to achieve long-term economic prosperity, political stability, and freedom across the hemisphere, fundamentally to improve the lives of our southern neighbors. I share that vision and commit to working with this administration and Congress, especially members of this committee. I pledge to use the means available to advance democracy and human rights. And as a proud Hispanic woman, I look forward to working towards expanding opportunities for women throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member and other members of this committee, thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you. I would be pleased to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Ms. Castillo. Ms. Goldman. I'm sorry, the, the microphone. Senator Rubio, Senator Cardin, and Senator Shaheen, and the other members that will be joining, I guess, later. I am honored to be here today as the nominee for the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Global Health and the United States Agency for International Development. I'm humbled by President Trump's nomination and the confidence of Administrator Green. I'd like to recognize and thank my incredible colleagues in the Global Health Bureau, as well as the Global Development Lab, as well. USAID's programs demonstrate the great compassion of the American people, while advancing also the U.S. security priorities and prosperity of our, our nation. If confirmed, I commit to supporting the mission of the Global Health Bureau to control the HIV epidemic, to prevent child and maternal de uh, deaths, and to combat infectious diseases while we advance health security. I consider myself to be one of the richest women you will meet. My wealth is not in money, but in relationships. I'm privileged to be the mother of four children. Four years ago, in one of my last conversations with my oldest son, Dr. Matthew Davis, my trauma surgeon's son encouraged me to re-enter public service. I honor his inspiration today. My other children, David Jonathan Davis, Barbara Davis Empick, Daniel Coe Davis, and Matt's wife, Sharon Davis, and their families are supporting me from Texas. 
Today, Mariana Sobsova-McCrite is with me. She joined our family as a Freedom Support Act scholar from Ukraine 25 years ago and has been the daughter of my heart since that time. I'm grateful to the Congress for the extraordinary programs like that, which bring the world together. I'm the grandmother of 12 amazing grandchildren, 15 if you count Marina's, and uh, so I'm heavily invested in the future. Uh, I, Administrator Green's inspiring vision of USAID has been irresistible to this Texas pediatrician. Um, my passion for access to healthcare has gone back to my childhood. As a child, I was inspired by stories I heard about missionaries who went to other parts of the world to help people in need. Like most young women growing up in the 1960s, I assumed I would enter nursing. However, my father, who was a decorated World War II aviator and who taught me to fly when I was 14, <laughs> gave me wings of another sort when he, when he asked me, why don't you just become a doctor? Later, as a pediatrician and a single mom in my hometown in Texas, I could not serve overseas, but the needs of my own county captured my heart. While volunteering with a public health clinic, I recognized the absence of affordable, accessible, quality care. I left private pediatrics, and I joined the University of Texas Medical Branch, for a where for a decade I ran a network of 16 clinics over a span of about 270 miles in South and East Texas, providing health care in rural and underserved communities. This experience of frontline health care informed my four years at the Department of Health and Human Services while I worked with the Office of Population Affairs as well as helped launch PEPFAR. And it also has provided important insights while I've worked with USAID since October 2017. If confirmed, I commit to bring not only my passion for access for quality care, but also my experience to the countries where USAID operates. This administration proudly supports the global health security strategy, an effective tool to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats. I have witnessed the complexity of the, the recent Ebola epidemic firsthand in the DRC, and if confirmed, I commit to supporting and strengthening global health security that builds resilience and responsibility around the world. USAID prioritizes the empowerment of women and girls, and we must be, remain engaged in order to stop the harmful practices of child marriage, child exploitation, domestic violence, and other forms of trafficking and abuse. I commit to continuing that fight. One agent of change in health outcomes that is mostly underappreciated and inadequately resourced is men. Caring men strengthen diverse health outcomes, including the use of prenatal care, immunization, school attendance, use of voluntary family planning, and adequate nutrition, while lowering rates of domestic ex um, violence and exploitation. If confirmed, I commit to identifying current programs and new supports to help male cha champions for health and well-being. Global health is on the threshold of a decade of significant change where we will uh, confront, no doubt, new epidemics, increase in antimicrobial resistance, changing populations, and additional man-made crises. But we also have extraordinary possibilities. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Dr. Golden. Mr. Heyman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, Thank you for giving me the honor of this opportunity to appear before the committee today. I also want to thank the President and the Secretary of State for the confidence they have shown in me by nominating me as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. I'm joined today by my wife, Dusadi, my companion and closest partner over the past 30 years. Also by my daughter, Faye, who knows well the challenges of growing up in the frequent moving foreign service life 
Faye had already attended five schools in four countries by the time she reached second grade. I am proud to have devoted almost 29 years to the service of the American people as a foreign service officer. I believe my multiple previous diplomatic assignments in Laos and in two of Laos' most important neighbors, China and Thailand, have prepared me well for this lofty assignment should the Senate confirm my nomination. Today, I'm happy to say that the U.S.-Laos relationship continues to develop beyond the heights reached in 2016 with the announcement of our joint comprehensive partnership. The administration remains steadfast in its commitment to this comprehensive partnership as the roadmap for further deepening ties with Laos. If confirmed, I will diligently explore new ways to deepen this burgeoning relationship with Laos based on common interests and a shared desire to heal the wounds of the past. In addition to a growing bilateral partnership with the United States, Laos is a member of the Ten Nation Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. The administration's vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific has ASEAN at its core and is built on principles that are widely shared in the region, ensuring the freedom of the seas and skies, insulating sovereign nations from external pressure, promoting market-based economics, open and transparent investment environments, and free, fair, and reciprocal trade. It also supports good governance and respect for human rights. These values and policies have helped the Indo-Pacific region grow and thrive. Laos itself is the geographic connective tissue of mainland Southeast Asia, sharing over 3,000 miles of land borders with China and four other ASEAN countries, including sub-regional leaders Thailand and Vietnam. Laos is also one of the weakest countries in ASEAN economically, making it potentially more vulnerable to external pressure. If confirmed, working to empower Laos as a sovereign nation will be a top priority. Our sustained engagement with and support for Laos, including increased senior, senior official visits in recent years, has engendered greater trust and enabled progress on strategic U.S. priorities. Together with like-minded partners, we are seeking a Laos that is more prosperous and better governed, protecting and promoting the human rights of those in Laos. We are engaging with emerging reform-minded leaders, and we are encouraging Laos to maintain its sovereignty and be a constructive member of the rules-based international order. Although the emerging U.S.-Lao relationship holds promise, significant roadblocks remain. The Lao People's Revolutionary Party remains the ultimate authority in this one-party state, and many of the Indochina War veteran leaders still in charge of the government first dealt with the United States in a very different and difficult era in our relations. With American help and encouragement, however, we are embarked now on a new and positive era in our ties. As one example, we have been assisting as the Lao government grapples with the many challenges of transnational crime. To fight human trafficking, for instance, Laos last year took notable new steps, although there is still great room for improvement. If confirmed, I will actively work with the Lao in their efforts to more effectively fight transnational crime in the subregion. If confirmed, I would plan to focus on our forward-looking comprehensive relationship with Laos, but I also pledge to continue addressing challenges remaining from the past. I will do everything I can to support the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency's efforts to achieve the fullest possible accounting for the remaining 286 U.S. personnel still missing in Laos from the Indochina War. 
The United States is currently the number one donor in the effort to remove unexploded ordnance, or UXO, that remains from that war, having contributed some $200 million since 1995. The Lao government has committed to eliminate UXO as a barrier to national development by 2030, and the administration supports that goal and believes it is achievable. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, if confirmed, I will devote all my ability and experience to advancing U.S. objectives in Laos, a country that is an important link in the administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Ms. Romanowski. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the State of Kuwait. With your permission, I'd like to submit my full statement for the record. I'm grateful to the President and Secretary Pompeo for placing their trust and confidence in me. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with this committee to advance U.S. interests, American values, and our strong relationship with Kuwait. First, I'd like to express my deepest gratitude to my parents. I'm a first-generation American. My father came to the United States from Poland in 1946. He enlisted in the U.S. Army, served in Korea, and became an accomplished professor of higher energy physics. My mother came to the United States from Canada and gave back to our community as a high school French teacher. They instilled in me a strong sense of service, respect, and humility, and are always with me in spirit. I want to thank my family and friends for being here with me today. My husband, Bill Matsilevich, served in the U.S. Navy for 24 years as a submariner and has provided me with steadfast support throughout my career. My two sons, Nicholas and Eric, have brought me tremendous pride and joy. My sister, Dominique, is watching live stream from California. Without their love and support, I would not be here today. Mr. Chairman, November marks almost 40 years of my U.S. government service, most of it focused on the Middle East in positions at four different national security agencies. If confirmed, I will draw on that broad experience to advance American objectives in Kuwait and the region, not only on security and economic issues, but also on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Kuwait hosts U.S. military forces that are critical to stability and security in the Middle East and essential to our national security interests. Kuwait is a key member of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS and calls for unity among the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council. If confirmed, I will continue building on a partnership that I have directly supported since the 1990 Gulf War. The U.S. military and diplomatic partnership with Kuwait has been essential to increasing pressure on Iran and containing its malign activities throughout the region. We must work together with key partners such as Kuwait to counter the Iranian threat. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, my highest priority will be the safety and security of all Americans in Kuwait. Over 45,000 private American citizens are working in Kuwait across a range of industries. Our strong people-to-people -people ties, however, go both ways. Last year, over 12,000 Kuwaitis registered to study at universities across America. These students inject more than $1.2 billion into the U.S. economy each year. They take back their understanding of the United States to Kuwait, strengthening the social and cultural ties between our countries. 
Kuwait's economy centers on oil. Kuwait currently produces 2.75 million barrels of oil per day and wants to grow this in the near future. To meet this goal, Kuwait is benefiting from the expertise of U.S. oil services companies. This year, Halliburton signed a $597 million contract to explore oil offshore. If confirmed, advocating for U.S. businesses will be one of my top priorities. Kuwait must strengthen the rights of its vulnerable populations, namely women, stateless Arab Bidoon, and Kuwait's large expat labor force. Our cooperation with Kuwait can drive this uh, change because strong, sustained U.S. advocacy was critical to Kuwait's upgrade to Tier 2 status in the 2019 Trafficking in Persons Report. Kuwait is already a leader in the region for allowing space for political expression, fostering independent media, and encouraging participatory government. If confirmed, I will take these, um, make these issues an important part of my dialogue with the Kuwaiti leadership and its citizens. Although our history with Kuwait is the foundation of the lasting friendship that we have today, our relations must not depend on what we have achieved in the past. The influence of younger Kuwaitis born after the liberation in 1990 grows every day. Together, we must build a foundation for the future rooted in our shared values, interests, and vision. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to ensure the next generation of Americans and Kuwaitis can be proud of our cooperation and shared values. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. And finally, Ms. Sue. Uh, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Sultanate of Oman. I thank the President and the Secretary for the trust they have placed in me and, um, and I'm grateful for their confidence. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with you to advance U.S. national security interests and values in Oman. Here with me today are my father, Edward So, a physician and first-generation American, also a retired U.S. Air Force officer who served with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam, and my mother, Carol So, a former registered nurse who holds master's degrees in liberal studies and theological studies. My sister, Wendy Berg, is here today, as well as my nieces, Alexa and Haley Strunk. I value their love and support more than they know. If confirmed as ambassador to Oman, I will focus on three core priorities. My first priority will be the safety and security of all Americans in Oman, those at the embassy, as well as the many U.S. citizens living, working, studying, and traveling there. My second priority will be to build on our already strong cooperation with Oman to confront threats to regional security and to U.S. national interests. I will focus intensively on countering the threat from Iran, promoting safety and security of navigation through the Strait of Hormuz, pushing for a political solution to the conflict in Yemen, and combating terrorism in all its forms. As we've recently seen in Saudi Arabia, Iran's malign activities throughout the region pose a threat to international stability. Oman has a policy of open communications with its neighbors, including Iran, with which it borders the Strait of Hormuz. Approximately 40% of the world's exported oil and gas passes through the Strait of Hormuz, most through internationally approved shipping lanes in Oman's territorial sea. Unlike Iran, Oman is committed to the safety and security of navigation through the Strait. It shares our concerns about Iranian behavior. 
We hold regular discussions with the government of Oman on our Iran sanctions policy, and Oman is committed to ensuring that its banks and companies fully comply with U.S. sanctions. If confirmed, I will prioritize in my consultations with Omani leaders our government's work to counter Iran's destabilizing activity in the region. Across Oman's southwestern border, the conflict in Yemen has entered its fifth year. Oman is deeply concerned about it and has continuously called for a political solution. It fully supports the UN process led by Special Envoy Martin Griffiths to bring the conflict to an end. The US government is working with Oman to secure its border with Yemen and specifically to prevent Iran from shipping weapons, advisors, and dual-use technology to the Houthis. Our comprehensive border security assistance program with Oman aims to deepen our engagement with Omani defense and law enforcement and to strengthen Oman's capacity to effectively protect its borders. If confirmed, I will commit myself to continuing and strengthening these efforts. Iran has zero legitimate national interests inside Yemen, apart from inflaming regional tensions, prolonging the conflict, inflicting damage on the Yemeni population, and precluding meaningful political negotiation. Secretary Pompeo visited Oman most recently in January, during which he praised what he called Oman's unique capacity to create opportunities for dialogue on difficult issues at challenging times, including by separately hosting both Palestinian Authority President Abbas and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu in Amman in October 2018. Amman made history in October 2018 when the Sultan invited Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to Muscat, the first time an Israeli Prime Minister has visited a Gulf country in over two decades. Through its unique role, Oman has also helped bring the Houthis into the UN peace process. In the past few years, it has played a pivotal role in securing the safe release and return of about a dozen U.S. citizens held in Yemen and continues to offer its good offices to secure the release of other Americans unjustly held in Yemen, Iran, and Syria. Ultimately, safety and stability in Oman and Oman's ability to play a productive role in regional stability will depend on its ability to transform its economy and bring prosperity to the Omani people. That is why, if confirmed, my third priority will be to expand our economic partnership with Oman. The United States and Oman signed a free trade agreement in 2009. In the 10 years since, the value of American exports to Oman has tripled and the value of Omani exports to the United States has doubled. This is a solid basis from which to expand trade even further. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, you have my commitment that if confirmed, I will promote American values and U.S. national security interests in every engagement that the U.S. Embassy has with the government of Oman and its people. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you, and I look forward to taking your questions. Okay, great. Um, let's, uh, we'll begin with uh, Senator Sheen. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and Senator Cardin. Um, and congratulations to each of you on your nominations. Um, Mr. Hammond, Ms. Rumanowski, and Ms. Sue, um, we especially appreciate all of the career foreign service officers and thank you all very much for your service. Um, Dr. Golden and Ms. Castillo, um, we very much appreciate your willingness to consider um, coming in and doing public service. Dr. Golden again and Ms. Castillo again um, and taking on these challenging assignments. Um, Dr. Golden, I especially appreciated our conversation yesterday and I wanted to go back to a couple of things that we talked about. As I said to you, I'm very concerned about the way this administration has implemented and expanded the Mexico City policy. And I have heard from representatives of organizations that it's having a chilling effect on family planning programs, as well as broader global health program, from HIVs and the PEPFAR program to other areas where 
I think we would all agree that it's important that we support what organizations are doing around the world and encourage them to address global health issues. So, and I know that you talked to me about the work that you have done in Texas, um, especially with um, those who are most at risk. So I especially appreciate your interest in ensuring that people get the support they need. But will you commit to ensuring that USAID provides unbiased and apolitical information to prime and sub-recipients of US foreign assistance who are not clear about how to best comply with the expanded Mexico City policy? Thank you. Uh, I am uh, honored. I enjoyed very much our visit yesterday, and I thank you for the opportunity to get together. I think you know from our discussion that I'm genuinely committed to access to care for for people around the world. As you know, the uh, United States has the largest bilateral support of family planning uh, in, in the world. And we're grateful that we have an opportunity where we work with not only large organizations, but local organizations as well to address the needs that were there. Uh, we have, as you're aware, there's been no reduction not even a single dollar of our support for foreign assistance for family planning, regard, you know, whether Mexico City is in force or not. So consequently, even though the vast majority of our organizations, our NGOs that we work with, have uh, agreed to the policy, those few that have not signed up to continue under the PLGHA, the dollars and the services have been uh, transition to other partners. So we are monitoring that carefully. Uh, USAID is an experienced transitioner of contracts and partners, and we, are, we have everything fully in place right now so that we can assure that the money and the services can continue. We are working with the interagency, because this is an all-of-government activity, we're working with the interagency to do, uh, to finalize reviews and to monitor in an ongoing manner. Um, Dr. Golden, I'm going to interrupt you um, and ask that maybe you can, we'll submit a question for the record and hopefully you could delineate some of those other areas. I'm running out of time and I have some other oh, questions. Oh, sorry, thank you thank so you much. Thank you very we, much. I commit to doing that, thank you. Um, Ms. Castillo, I appreciate that in your testimony you highlighted the importance of the Inter-American Development Bank to better the lives, of, particularly of women in Latin America and the Caribbean. And if confirmed, how would you use the weight of the U.S. and our role at the IDB to promote loans directed at women's rights and empowerment. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, as, as you said, and I mentioned in my opening statement, it would be a priority of mine. Um, if I am fortunate to be confirmed, I would be extremely supportive of um, loans that would provide access um, uh, for vocational training, for instance, or uh, for those women who are entrepreneurs, um, uh, also reducing the gender gap, uh, I would be extremely supportive of those. Thank you. Um, Mr. Hammond, since 1982, the Laos government has been largely supportive of accounting for U.S. personnel um, who have gone missing in Laos. These are very important efforts to address the uncertainty and end the, the lack of information that so many American families have. There are 
268 unaccounted for Americans who were lost during the Vietnam War in Laos, or expecting, we think they're in Laos. Can you talk about whether there's any way we can help improve um, our ability to work with the Lao government to get the return of those remains and find, find out what happened to those service members? Thank you, Senator. Um, as I mentioned, this will be my third time working in Laos, and each, in each of those assignments, the, uh, the search for the POWMIA uh, remaining personnel was one of our, our key goals in the embassy. It would certainly be so in, uh, if I to confirmed and if I were to uh, go to Vientiane again. Um, the Lao government uh, in recent years has been shown some increasing flexibility in allowing uh, larger teams to come in and search in allowing uh, more flexibility where those teams are based. I would continue to press the Lao government to uh, increase that flexibility and, and help us gain access to any remaining witnesses from that period. Uh, this has been, as I say, a lead issue in our relationship for many years, and I am very much committed to pushing that forward towards the most successful conclusion possible. Thank you. And finally, Ms. Sue and Ms. Romanowski, um, you are both, if confirmed, going to countries in the Middle East that have been relatively stable, um, at least for the, the last several decades, and are in very strategic locations to um, be more engaged in helping to address some of the conflicts in that part of the world. Are there ways in which you see that we can encourage that? I very much appreciate what you said about Oman and their interest in addressing the war in Yemen, but are there other things that we can do to encourage them to get more engaged in helping to resolve some of these conflicts? And I would ask either or both of you to respond. Um, thank you, Senator, I'll go first. Um, Oman has this, um, this knack of being able to find a way to straddle some of the divides in the area, religious and um, otherwise, and to it, play a positive role. And um, we work with them on a range of issues, as you know we have for years. I think Yemen is a place where they've been particularly helpful. Um, I was also, since my last post was uh, in Israel, was um, very heartened by their stance towards the Israelis and the Palestinians. I thought that that was um, a great move that they did, and maybe we can build on that as well. Um, you know, they have been very responsive to what we've asked, so I'd be happy to work with any of you on the committee to think of ways that perhaps they can be helpful. And if I'm confirmed and I'm out there, I will be looking for ways to uh, utilize that. So thank you for that question. Thank you. Ms. Romanowski. So thanks, Senator, for the question. Um, I, uh, Kuwait has been, as uh, I mentioned, a strategic partner for a long time for us and provides us some um, uh, incredible access for us to achieve our objectives um, in trying to resolve the conflict, but also and uh, uh, has been a really solid uh, counterterrorism partner uh, with us. Uh, the Emir has been uh, an early um, uh, mediator in the Gulf Rift um, and uh, works with us very closely on trying to find new and creative ways to bring the GCC members together. Uh, we are uh, uh, continuously talking and speaking with the Kuwaitis on, on responding to the ever-changing environment with terrorists in the region. Um, we do have a very close um, uh, dialogue with them. The strategic partnership um, 
a dialogue that we do have affords us an incredible platform to talk about um, ways in which we can advance and broaden the work that we do together. So if I am confirmed, I have uh, many uh, opportunities and platforms to ensure that the Kuwaitis remain really good partners with us on seeking resolution and solutions and advancing our challenges in the region. Thank Great. you. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations uh, to each of you. So I, I have a question for uh, Ms. Romanowski and Ms. So about Kuwait, because I understand you were in Kuwait at an earlier point in your career. And, and this is really to educate us about why sectarian conflict has traditionally been so low in Kuwait. Um, in June of 2015, ISIS carried out a set of attacks on the same day in Kuwait, Tunisia, Sudan, and uh, France. And the attack in Kuwait that ISIS carried out was the bombing of a Shia mosque in the heart of town. And in response to that bombing, the country's Sunni leaders came to the mosque immediately. And then the funeral for the Shia who had been killed at Friday prayers was held in the primary Sunni mosque in Kuwait City. Uh, I happened to be leading a Kodel to the region, and we were there the day of the funeral by coincidence, and we went to pay our respects. But it was a very notable statement that Sunni leadership and clerical leadership um, opened up the Sunni mosque for the funeral for these 27 Shia victims of the ISIS bombing. And Kuwait has had that uh, as part of its DNA for some time, whereas other nations, Bahrain, uh, Yemen, uh, Syria, you see t very significant tensions between Sunni Shia or between groups like the Alawites that have had a traditional connection to the Shia or the Houthis that have had a traditional connection to the Shia. So what is it about Kuwait that has enabled them to deal with this sectarian divide which is so corrosive in other nearby countries? And what can we learn from it and how might we promote it more broadly? Um, Senator, let me take that question first and I'll turn to my colleague Leslie. Um, I think there are a number of uh, reasons why the, uh, the Kuwaitis have been more successful. They have, I think, early on integrated the 30% of Shia population into the life, the political life of the social and cultural life of Kuwait. Um, they also have um, a national assembly that um, is much more active in, in encouraging public debate and dealing with these issues. Um, uh, and I think it's the leadership in Kuwait that has uh, 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 demonstrated that there is there's a way to integrate um, uh, minorities and other uh, streams and ideas in, in their country. Um, and I think that um, the Kuwaitis continue to do that, and I think, as you pointed out, the, um, uh, the response in 2015 about, uh, of that uh, terrorist incident is an indication of how exactly how they uh, go about making sure that um, they minimize or at least manage whatever sectarian mm -hmm. uh, uh, problems they can they can re uh. so um, thank you senator it's been a long time since I've been in Kuwait mm -hmm. um, but I remember that Shia mosque very well it was quite prominent and um, the Kuwaitis seem to have no problem with that unlike other countries I've served in Oman is also an example of a place where um, different sects mm -hmm. live side by side. Um, the government doesn't keep statistics, but some um, NGOs speculate that 
a little under half of the population of Oman is Ibadi, which is a different type of religion sect of the um, of uh, Islam, which you don't see in very many places in mm -hmm. the world. But there's also almost a, the same number of uh, Sunni Muslims who live there, and they live side by side. They are all live inside the government. They have members or representatives from each. Um, I think that comes from Oman's um, commitment to be in charge uh, to have communication with all of its neighbors, regardless of religion, regardless of political affiliation. It's part of the country's um, ethos, if you will. Well, I, I, um, I encourage you both to, to do all you can to promote that example, should you be confirmed. I, I believe you will, will both be confirmed. The, I think one of the tragedies of the region is the horrible proxy war throughout the region between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, I have voted for Iran sanctions many times, and do not like many of the things they're doing. I also am very disturbed at Saudi behavior, the, the, the sort of kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister a couple years ago, and now that government has fallen. There, there is an effort by both of these countries to engage in proxy activity across the region. And as I travel there, people talk about feeling crushed by a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, that is not purely Sunni Shia. It's sort of Sunni Shia and Arab Persian and revolutionary guard and monarchy and economic competitors. Neither of these nations are going anywhere. They're going to be, you know, dozens of miles apart forever. And unless or until they figure out a path to, over time, de-escalate the tensions between themselves, we could solve every other problem in the region and there would still be significant problems there. So both Oman and Kuwait have the ability, um, I think, uh, to hold themselves as an example, but also be part of, of dialogue that might bring down the proxy war, and I would encourage you in that. Uh, Dr. Golden, I was interested in the one aspect of your testimony. Um, you talked about one great agent of change in health outcomes is um, men, uh, and I think that that's very true, supportive men, and you used a phrase that kind of struck me when you said it, uh, greater use of modern forms of voluntary family planning. The word voluntary, I guess I didn't expect to hear. I would have, I would have probably not even registered, uh, had you said uh, family planning, why, why the word voluntary? I think the term voluntary has actually been in place for most of the government programs since uh, the, for the last 50 or more years, mm -hmm. because we recognize that we don't want compulsory environments where people feel constrained or forced into doing something that is against their conscience mm -hmm. or their belief or against the, the, the needs of their family themselves. So yes, it's been a, a definite part of uh, family planning throughout the USAID history, and I, as well as the other parts of the government. I, I think that is really important. One of the reasons why there's such strong objection by members of the committee to the gag rule, to the Mexico City policy, is we feel like it's a violation of that very principle, the voluntary principle. Just as we would oppose governments that have a one-child policy or things like that, because as you say, you don't want to have people feel coerced or constrained in making their own family planning choices. And I think that, that you just said it so well. We shouldn't uh, allow governments, including our own, to coerce people, nor should we allow governments, including our own, to constrain people in making the decisions that's best for them. So I, I hope you will be true to that longstanding uh, mission. Um, and I think that you're going to have members of this committee continue to advocate against policies that we think actually violate that principle of voluntariness by constraining people or coercing their choices. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. The ranking member. Once again, let me thank all of our nominees. Uh, Ms. Golden, I'm going to follow up on uh, Senator Shaheen and Senator Kane. 
I strongly disagree with the administration's expansion of the Mexico City policies and the gag rule and recognize that's not your decision. I recognize it, but it affects you carrying out your mission. And the impact uh, on global health. You mentioned that the funding is the same, although there are organizations that are now not participating. And we've had a policy for a long time on the use of federal funds for abortion. That is a policy that's not really in debate right now, it's the expansion of the Mexico City policies that have uh, caused angst among uh, healthcare organizations globally. And the issue I really want to talk about is that we want to be prepared for pandemics. We have to respond, we recognize that, but, but our best line of defense is adequate preparation. And the, my concern, I think concern of many people, is that the gag rule, the expanded gag rule, is going to affect our ability to be prepared to have in place the healthcare facilities and infrastructure globally. The last six-month review report that was prepared by this administration on the impact of the expanded Mexico City policy was February 2018. We haven't had any further uh, uh, review by the administration. So can you share with us what you believe the impact of the expanded Mexico City policy will have on your ability to carry out your mission to protect global health? Thank you, Senator Cardin. I'm glad to respond. First of all, I, want, I think it's important to note that there are many people with many different perspectives on how, what is part of family planning and what is not. I think at, I will have to go back to my, to my roots. I'm a pediatrician. I've been an advocate for children, whether they were born or not, for a very long time. And it's, uh, abortion as a form of family planning has never been something that I could be comfortable with personally. That's why it's been comfortable for me to advocate for the protecting life and global health assistance. I am a strong advocate and always have been of voluntary family planning, working alongside family planning programs for, for over 20 years, 30 years, I guess now. But uh, I do believe that we, considering the vast majority of the organizations that sign on and are more than happy to not only provide family planning, but also other coordinated services and also prevent, promote prevention techniques to where we're strengthening health systems, I think we can still certainly meet our goals without using U.S. tax dollars to support um, the NGOs, for NGOs that provide or promote abortion. So I thank you for your question. You ask also about the review. Uh, I have not been in the Bureau for Global Health for the last seven months, but I can tell you that there's been, there have been active activities to monitor all of our family planning as well as our other activities, and that we are following uh, not only what our partners are doing, but we're sharing that information with the interagency, and I'm confident that uh, when I get back to global health, I'll have an opportunity to check on what the status of the review is, and I'll be glad to get back to you at that time. I appreciate that. Also, as to the balance, as to how we use resources to deal with pandemic preparation rather than just, we have to respond. I recognize that, but mm -hmm. preparation is a, a key ingredient sometimes that we overlook. 
uh, that could prevent the next uh, pandemic from being out of control. I agree. I've been in the uh, northeast part of uh, the DRC now twice, and one of the impressions I had was that if we had stronger systems of health whereby you could do more active prevention, where you even introduce more things like just preventive hand washing, our immunizations, our building up a communication framework that's in the community that we could actually address and respond much more quickly. I think the frame that we, framework with that we have with the Global Health Security Agenda of prevention, detection, and response is one that uh, I, I am very excited about working with. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Ms. Castillo. Uh, the challenges we've talked about, we have in Central America the challenge of migration. Good governance is critically important. You mentioned anti-gang activities, very important in that part in order to provide stability in those countries. And also, by the way, to deal with the migration issue. Plan Colombia, we have a lot of hope in Plan Colombia. There are challenges in, in getting that plan implemented. But now we have an additional crisis in the region with Venezuela, which puts tremendous pressure on Colombia with the migrants coming into that country. How do you see the role of the bank in helping us to deal with the stability in Colombia, dealing with the, with the crisis in Venezuela, and dealing with Central America? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I share, obviously, your, your concerns with what's happening in Venezuela, uh, a country that was once the richest country in Latin America, um, has seen its economy collapse and fall into dictatorial rule. Um, with regards to supporting the neighboring countries that have received over four million Venezuelan migrants, um, that's actually, that's globally, um, it's my understanding that the bank has set up a fund to try to help offset the financial impact of those migrants. Um, if I am fortunate to be confirmed, I look forward to uh, continuing to support uh, a fund like that, as well as being part of the reconstruction and rebuilding of Venezuela when Maduro is no longer uh, in, in power, and, uh, and working with Juan Guaido's uh, administration as well. I would hope that would be a high priority. Uh, we've invested so much uh, in that region, and Plan Colombia, now Peace Colombia. Uh, we've got to make sure it succeeds. And in Central America, again, we've invested a great deal, and there's still challenges, and investment is going to be critically important. I want to get to the three career ambassadors in the post, if I might. I've always asked, always asked questions of every, every ambassador, even if it's to a very, very friendly, developed, democratic state, what they're going to do to advance uh, American values on human rights of its citizens. But the three countries here do have challenges. You've all addressed it in your statements before us, the human rights issues. And you talk with pride the progress that's been made in all of the countries. And that's true. There has been progress made. So Laos, yes, they are, they've improved their trafficking. They're no longer tier three, but they're tier two watch, which is nothing to brag about. They still have a way to go. And protection for civil society is still a challenge in that country. That's also true in regards to Kuwait. Civil society does not have the freedoms that, have, that we would like to see in democratic states, 
Yes, they're better than their neighbors, but there's still a way that they need to advance in order to protect the, their human rights. And in, in regards to Oman, uh, yes, they've made some advances but uh, on dealing with Iran, but they're still trafficking of weapons into the Houthis in Yemen, which is creating serious, one of the most serious humanitarian crises of our time. So I would like to hear your commitment to make American values of basic rights a top priority if you're confirmed and how you will work with this committee and work with this senator as to how we can advance the rights of civil society, of, of the people of the country to, to be able to speak out, the freedom of the press, um, those types of protections, and, and certainly to make further advancements on trafficking in persons in each of the countries involved. So give you each a chance. Thank you, Senator. Um, as you say, uh, Tier 2 watch list is nothing to brag about. Uh, we're looking at a positive trend line, and my commitment would be to do my best to uh, assist the Lao, urge the Lao to continue that trend line to increase. It's not satisfactory at this point. It's better than it was. We'll look forward to helping them make it better further. As you note correctly, uh, there are many challenges for civil society and basic uh, human rights in Laos. Um, I am happy to commit to prioritizing, uh, pushing forward American values and support for human rights, both because it's the right thing and because I would look forward to making the case to the Lao government that working with civil society is the best way to build trust between a people and its government, and that's going to be the best way to help Laos maintain its sovereignty as a stronger nation in the face of uh, influence growing from some of its larger neighbors. So I would look forward to working with your office and with the committee on both of those issues and the broader question of human rights support. Senator, I'll say in Kuwait, I think we have been engaging the Kuwaiti leadership and its own people and, and its small nascent um, civil society uh, organizations on, on human rights. We have made progress um, uh, with the upgrade to Tier 2, and that was really a result of sustained engagement on, on the U.S. Embassy's part and our part on that. It's, it is a positive trend line. There's a lot more to do, and we can do more to do that. The, um, the engaging with uh, Kuwaiti citizens um, on uh, American values is important. We have a good foundation to build on the student, ex uh, the student program that comes here, which I will be, I am committed to ensure that it is, it continues and grows uh, with the Kuwaitis. Uh, when we uh, uh, learn of problems in, hu in human rights or allegations, we uh, engage again the uh, Kuwaiti leadership and their, and their justice system. Um, and their um, and their uh, the law enforcement system. So I think we can make progress, but there but it needs sustained enga engagement. And uh, if confirmed, I commit that I will be working very uh, hard to keep that uh, forward trend going. Um, Senator Oman's human rights record is better than many in the region, but there's obviously work to be done there. Um, trafficking in persons is one area where I think we can make some concrete progress. Oman is also on the Tier 2 watch list, but they have um, they understand what they need to do. A lot of the problems that they have is that they have made um, oral commitments to abiding by the trafficking in per uh, um, persons 
um, standards that we have laid out with them and discussed with them, but they haven't actually done anything through their parliament. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that we can help them with and will work very extensively towards so that we can hopefully get them off of the tier two watch list and even into tier one. Um, Bahrain is an example of a country in the Gulf that's on tier one, and I know the Omanis are interested in that as well. Um, you raise an, a real concern about um, Oman possible role in allowing the Iranians to provide military assistance, advisors, weapons um, across their border to the Houthi in Yemen. We have been very clear with the Omani government that they cannot permit Iran to use Omani territory to do this. They say they're doing the best they can not to, but that is probably not good enough. Um, we are providing them border assistance, security assistance, um, concrete training so that they can recognize, for example, if, a, um, if some kind of uh, cargo is being transported across the border, what is it? How do you detect whether it is what it says it is or whether it's actually a weapon of some sort? Um, strengthening their border guard, et cetera. But that's um, a real concern of mine. It's a concern of our entire governments and something that um, I um, will really commit myself to. Also, I want to say I'm very happy to um, talk to you or any of the rest of the committee about ideas you might have on this regard and also on the human rights so that um, we can work on this together. Thank you all. Appreciate your response. Senator Bartner. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the nominees before us today. Thank you for your service. Mr. Heymond, uh, we had the opportunity to visit in the office uh, here last week. We talked about your experiences in Thailand. How do you think the uh, experiences that you have uh, gained in Thailand, your previous service as well uh, in the Foreign Service, um, how, how can you apply that to your new position in Laos, particularly as it relates to uh, China and the developments uh, in those relationships? Thank you, Senator. I did enjoy the conversation we had uh, last week. Um, the Indo-Pacific strategy of the, under the administration, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, is based on uh, ASEAN as a core, as a centerpiece. Um, and so the strength of ASEAN is going to be an important part of having that be a successful strategy. Laos is one of the weakest members in ASEAN. Uh, but it is also a country that is not looking to be a satellite of any country, China or any other. Um, I have spent the, the, my last three years in Thailand uh, working on, with the Thai on initiatives to help bring together the five countries of the lower Mekong to strengthen themselves as a unit and as ha of half of ASEAN so as to make the best deals possible uh, for infrastructure, other proposals that come through to um, support each other as a greater unit managing the resources of the Lower Mekong, which our Lower Mekong initiative has been working on for these last 10 years. Um, going across the river to Laos would look to work with the Lao government and encourage the Lao government to work with their ASEAN neighbors, particularly Thailand and Vietnam, the stronger economies, as well as with other like-minded countries. They're looking to help Laos maintain its sovereignty, maintain its independence, and grow in strength and integration within the ASEAN community. We had the opportunity as well to talk about the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, uh, which states that human rights and democracy promotion are key to U.S. national security interests. Uh, you're committed to these values, uh, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help further advocate, advocate for those values in Laos. Uh, what's your impressions of the treatment of Hmong people and other minorities uh, in Laos? Laos, um, it's been some years since I've been there. There have been uh, uh, challenges in the past with the, the Lao government and its relationship with the Hmong, particularly those who are um, 
we're still uh, mounting some resistance uh, to the government dating back to the war and uh, suspicions between the Lao government and the, the Lao and Hmong diaspora. Um, my understanding is that that situation has improved somewhat in the recent years. If uh, confirmed, I would commit to work with the Lao government to make sure that all of its ethnic minorities, certainly the Hmong, are treated equally along with other Lao citizens and would look to build uh, stronger ties and positive relations between Laos and the Lao diaspora in the United States. And following up on that question, same line of question really, uh, does U.S. assistance uh, help uh, create space for civil society within Laos, uh, perhaps a greater role? Uh, does it uh, create room for dialogue and uh, improvements in human rights uh, discussions and efforts? The, uh, the civil society is also nascent in Laos, but uh, the assistance we're providing, particularly that through our uh, USAID office, which we hope next year will become a new mission, uh, is aimed at helping the Lao with health, education, counter-trafficking in persons, uh, other issues, and prefers wherever possible to work with uh, civil society uh, groups within Laos. And as I mentioned to uh, Senator Cardin, my, if confirmed, I would look to make the case to the Lao government that civil society can be a strength uh, for Laos going forward and help it to maintain that sovereignty that it certainly wants. Well, very good. And as I have talked to every uh, nominee going into the uh, Indo-Pacific region, uh, talking about the tools that ARIA provides, the funding that has been provided by this Congress, uh, should that uh, be signed into law, is significant. And so I hope that uh, we can continue to count on uh, implementation of the, the goals of that legislation. I look forward to you doing just that. Uh, congratulations on the nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. All right, thank you. Um, so if I don't ask you a question, it's because somebody's already asked you, particularly uh, uh, the question I was going to ask you, particularly even so, I think almost all the questions I was going to ask have been so, have been asked and answered. So um, I always tell people when they're nominated, like the less people show up for the hearing and the shorter it is, the better the news is. Like, like if I'm ever nominated for something and have to appear in front of these guys, um, I don't want anybody showing up, and I want it to be like five minutes long. That's a very good sign. It's always a good sign. You feel bad, then you realize. So anyway. All right, let me, uh, let's start. Ms. Castillo, the, I think we're all really concerned about predatory lending practices of the Chinese all over the world, but we're starting to see it in the Western Hemisphere. One really good example is the Cococota Sinclair Dam in Ecuador. Right? Uh, according to press reports, only two years after opening, there are thousands of cracks are splintering the dam's machinery, its reservoirs clogged with silt, sand, and trees, and the only time engineers tried to throttle up the facility completely, it shook violently and shorted out the national electricity grid. That's like a bad dam, right? Uh, um, and, but again, finance and this sort of method. So how can uh, the Inter-American Inter Development Bank Help. I mean, is there a concerted effort to help members of uh, members of the community avoid these predatory lending practices, where they owe all this money, the leverage is created, and they're stuck with a, a dam that you can't operate because I've never heard of a dam shaking. I mean, that's you know that that's my I don't I'm not an engineer, but I my sense is that's not good engineering. Uh, but but um, how can we help? nations avoid falling into that trap? What, what can the Inter-American Inter Development Bank do and what is it doing now? Sure, uh, thank you for the Senator. Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, as you mentioned, that is uh, an example of a result of Chinese, of working with the Chinese 
um, and we've seen it in other countries as well, like Venezuela, uh, working with the Chinese may um, may include a short term a short term gain, but at the end of the day, it's a lot. It, it's an exchange for long term dependency, um, and. Uh, if I am fortunate to be confirmed at the bank, I would work closely with the U.S. executive team to work with our counterparts uh, on education and informing them on how an inter-American development bank goes through a robust um, process, working with uh, civil society groups and state and local elected officials, um, taking in consideration uh, environmental and social impacts uh, on the approval loan process, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the bank, loans from the bank lead towards long-term sustainability. My only point on that is if you look at, these are developing countries for the most part, or countries that, whose leaders are under tremendous pressure to deliver. Mm -hmm. um, case in point, El Salvador, a new president has, has the, his, really formed his own party to win, doesn't really have a governing majority in the legislative branch, so he needs some victories. Other places, you know, the Bahamas now have some significant uh, needs on two of the islands for rebuilding. They have to deliver, this happens all over the world. Mm -hmm. And then here come the Chinese with the promise of easy money in exchange for some project they can cut a ribbon on, it looks good. And from time to time, uh, by the way, some people get bribed along the way uh, to, to, to land some of these deals. And my only hope is that the Inter-American Development Act will make it a priority to sort of identify countries that have legitimate needs, political leaders that need to deliver uh, for, for purposes of, of, of the expectations that are upon them, and whose only option appears to be, now we can't do anything about the bribe part, but the only option appears to be a financing deal for something that isn't gonna work. I mean, Jamaica got stuck with a crazy highway that they owe money to Argentina. There's multiple countries, and I hope that becomes a priority. Something that, that is a priority for me, Dr. Golden, is, is maternal uh, mortality. I, I'm actually startled that the numbers in the U.S. are as high as they are, and, and I think I'm, one of the reasons I'm really sensitive to it is, you know, my father's mother did not die in childbirth, but she died when he was nine years old, and it was a, it basically defined so many of the challenges he faced the rest of his life. And, uh, and uh, now according to USAID in the last 20 years, the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births decreased by more than 50% in the 25 priority countries uh, that, that it had identified, yet, and still, the World Health Organization reports that 830 women die every day from preventable causes related to pregnancy, and 99% of these deaths, of course, are happening in developing countries, and I imagine that's a combination of, uh, you know, uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, I would imagine it also includes uh, preeclampsia and, and that's not treated or not monitored and so forth. I guess the, the I don't think I, have to ask you about your commitment to that cause because I know it's, it's significant. What I, what I do think is important is for always to justify what it means to a country societally, what it happens to a society and to a country and to a nation where so many women are dying at childbirth, what it means for their children. In many cases, they already have other children who are left without a mother. What happens to a country because that tells us how important prioritizing maternal mortality prevention programs are. Senator Rubio, thank you for that question, and it does go to the core of who I am and what I've done for several decades now. 
I think that one of the things that I uh, am grateful for is that we have made progress on identifying high-impact, efficient systems to help countries and uh, organizations and even individual communities to approach um, maternal child health more holistically. However, I think that the next step in terms of really building the journey to self-reliance, as we often use in uh, in USAID is to really equip each country to have the capacity to set up the systems that are necessary, back to Senator Cardin's concept too, that we have coordination and collaboration so that when we have maternal child health, we also can relate to our malaria, our TB, our family planning, our HIV programs so that we do treat people more holistically since malaria also is another significant cause of infant death. So we want to be sure that we are doing collaborative programs that we support directly the maternal child health but we have the surrounding health services that also help bring to the, to the forefront the possibility of preventing maternal child death. I think that uh, by analysis of some of the monitoring and evaluation that we have now, we have a clearer view of how to do that, and we also anticipate that we're going to be able to use some more high-impact practices, including secure technology. We also believe that women's empowerment is a very important part of this so that women not only know that they have health care, but they have the freedom to go, they also have the education they need, and we can delay the exploitation or early childhood marriage that complicates the situation for so many of these women. I, I look forward to working with you on that if confirmed. Just on this question, when, when you look at the countries where these pro this progress has been made, what in particular has been, I mean, I know that there's a holistic need and all the other associated uh, ailments that someone may have going into childbirth, but is there one, two, or three things that have been highly effective? Um, for example, the, the availability of, of, of blood or blood products uh, uh, in, in case there, there is hemorrhage, uh, the prenatal or treatment uh, where someone, preeclampsia, the high blood pressure, and all the associated risks that come with that is actually identified, monitored, and treated at the front end. Are there one or two strategies that have yielded the most results, in your opinion? I think there, um, there are several that you mentioned. First of all, I think the availability of prenatal care and some development of several different systems to offer that is helpful. The second thing is to have the delivery at a, a healthcare site rather than in the village. That actually has shown to be con consistently helpful in reducing maternal mortality, partly because of things like prevention of hemorrhage or identification of the need of a cesarean section, and, and there are some advantages coming out, even like uh, some inhaled oxytocin to help reduce hemorrhaging. So things along those lines are also helpful. And the other component that I mentioned during, in my testimony is that we recognize that women are well, who are well supported and cared for by their families, including their husbands, actually tend to utilize the services more and also have better timing and spacing to their pregnancies. So I think, um, the prenatal, the delivery in a safe environment, the availability of appropriate treatment as necessary, and supportive families and communities are all are places where we can really make continued inroads to improve uh, maternal and child mortality. And uh, my final question, because my question for you, Ms. Romanowski, was also asked and answered. So it's not because the way you guys are lined up, it just worked out that way. Um, but uh, uh, Mr. Heyman, I, I wanted to ask you related to the same issue regarding uh, China, the, the, uh, the same sort of predatory investment. So, so we know Laos has reportedly taken 
is what I read anyway, $480 million in loans from, uh, from a Chinese Exim bank. And, uh, and the IMF has classified Laos as high risk for, for debt distress. So are there areas in this relationship where you think the US, where our partners and, and, and different entities that we can leverage can provide viable alternatives to the sort of predatory Chinese investment that we've seen offered in different parts of the world and potentially even in Laos? Uh, thank you, Senator. I, I do believe there are alternatives um, that the administration is working to, uh, to provide with other partners. And I uh, uh, neglected to mention when uh, Senator Gardner was here, uh, out in the field, it's, it's great to see the bipartisan support for uh, the types of uh, the goals we have under the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy represented by the Asia uh, Reassurance Initiative Act. Um, it is a very true that Laos is in debt distressed and that China is by far its largest creditor. Uh, it's also true that um, as China is its largest investor, many of those investments have uh, not been to uh, the labor standards or environmental standards or law enforcement standards one would hope for. Where there's one of those special economic zones uh, notoriously is being sanctioned by the Treasury, our Treasury, for its involvement in human trafficking, drug trafficking, and, uh, other, form and um, other forms of corruption and crime. Uh, under the uh, Free and Open Indo-Pacific Strategy, uh, new tools we're hoping to use, uh, including the, the increased capital uh, that is being projected for uh, OPIC uh, as a new, a new development finance corporation, if that appropriation goes through, uh, with technical uh, assistance under the, um, the, the ITAN, the uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, in infrastructure transaction and assistance um, uh, network to provide technical assistance to the Lao uh, so that they can um, work to improve their own investment, uh, investment environment. Right now, they only have access to, or they or largely have access to uh, companies that are heavily subsidized by the state and um, when there are corruption issues, countries that are willing to take advantage of that situation. In order to bring in more top quality U.S. companies and find companies from other countries in the world that are not predatory, we want to work with the Lao government to help them improve the environment there that it makes it more attractive for those private sector companies to come in. We will have assistance through the U.S. Agency for International Development. We have assistance through um, on the uh, law enforcement side through the uh, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Bureau out of, the, of, out of state to help the Lao raise their standards for governance that includes investment and help them make the best deals possible. That is some of the technical assistance to help them uh, when they're brought a proposal for financing or for any type of new infrastructure that they can apply the best standards possible both because we have helped them learn what those standards are, both because we as a development partner are supporting a five-country initiative put forward by Thailand to help all five of those countries improve the quality of their infrastructure, and because we in the Lao are coordinating with other countries, other interested countries in Southeast Asia, the neighbors and countries like Australia and Japan and Korea, 
We're also very much interested in maintaining a strong, sovereign Laos, not dominated by China or any other country. All right. Um, well, I know all of you will be deeply disappointed that we aren't going to go another hour here, but all good things must come to an end, even today's hearing. And, uh, and so I want to, uh, all kidding aside, you all done a phenomenal job, and, and uh, we look forward to, to the work you'll do on behalf of our country. I know you're supposed to say uh, if confirmed, but I hope I can be saying when confirmed. You've all done very well today, and I appreciate all of you being here. Uh, the, the record for this hearing is going to remain over open for 24 hours, which means members that may not have been able to attend may submit questions, but uh, and, and as well as each of you may submit additional answers if, if necessary. And, and so again, I want to thank you all for being here and for your patience. Uh, it ended perfectly on time. You know, we, got, we have a vote at 1130, so now i got to sprint down there and get that done. But anyways, I, I appreciate all of you for being here. You've done great, and uh, we look forward, at least I personally look forward to supporting each of you in your nomination. And so with that, the, the hearing's adjourned.